Father, again, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for this time. We pray that you would bless it. May you help us to have excitement, joy, delight, longing. Look forward to that blessed place of heaven. We commit our time to you even now. May you, your Holy Spirit empower me even now. Move me out of the way and you speak your word to bring us to the knowledge and understanding of you. We pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, we're going to continue on this journey in heaven as we talked about last week. And last week, remember, we looked at uh, why we should long for heaven. There were so many reasons, weren't there, that who's in heaven why we should long for heaven? Our Father's in heaven. Our Savior is in heaven. Our loved ones who are in Christ are in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our names are in heaven. Our inheritance, our treasures, all of those things are in heaven. Now, what exactly is the definition of heaven? In the original language, it is in the plural form, and it is defined as the heights. In the English Standard Version, the word heaven is seen some 493 times in 464 verses. Another form of the word is orinus, and this is where we get the word, and this word is actually can be pronounced a couple of different ways. Uranus, 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 however you may want to pronounce it. It is one of our planets. Here it means that which is raised up or lofty. This explains why the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 2, about being caught up in the third heaven. So from Paul's reference there, we know that there are how many heavens? Three. You're listening. Good deal. Three heavens. The first is what we called the atmospheric heaven. Simply put, this would be considered the sky that we see. We see an example of this in Noah's day, where in Genesis 7, 11 through 12, in the English Standard Version, we read, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven were opened. And rain fell upon the earth, 40 days and 40 nights. Isaiah 55, 9 through 10, a very familiar passage as well, says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater. In Psalm 147 in verse 7 and 8, it says, Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises to our God on the lyre, who covers the heavens with clouds. Heaven in these passages is talking about what we see outside around us in the atmosphere. So this is what would be considered the first heaven. The second heaven. 
what we know as the heaven that contains all the planets, the moon, and the stars. Even at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1, starting at verse 14 and going to verse 16, it says, Then God said, Let there be what? Lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. And then after God had created the seasons, the days, the lights, and then that statement that he made the stars also. As if it was just something in passing. But if you have ever been out of, on a dark night, area with no man-made lights, which some of you may live in, <laughs> around you, and you know how incredible it is to look up in the sky and see a sky full of stars that seem incredibly dazzling and simply wondrous. So the Bible says, and he made the stars also. And as an aside, no two stars are alike. They are like fingerprints or snowflakes, each one unique and different. Some stars are binary stars or two star systems where they actually orbit one another. Quite fascinating. I don't know if you've ever heard this song by Keith and Kristen Getty. They wrote a song called Consider the Stars. And the first verse says, consider the stars in the sky. Look up and wonder. Can you count their number? Consider the stars in the sky. Umbrella to hide in. A dance floor of heaven. Incredibly written. So the sun, moon, stars, and planets are what we would call the second heaven. Now to the third heaven. This is the heaven that we are most concerned about because this is the heaven where God lives with his holy angels and the believers who have died and are now in the presence of the Lord. This heaven is eternal. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3.10 that the other heaven that we see all around us will pass away. The heaven I am talking about is the heaven where God has been before time began. And just as I decided that what Peter was talking about, this heaven is going to pass away. This earth is going to pass away. And everybody is so concerned about climate and global warming. Well, let me tell you something. It's all going to burn up one day anyway. It's going to be gone. So our concern should be on the third heaven. This is the universe, the heaven where God has been before time again. It is a heaven that is outside of our universe. Some, someone will ask a question, which is a good question. 
how is heaven the place where God lives? When God is omnipresent and he's everywhere. In other words, one may ask, how can an omnipresent God live anywhere? Good question, right? Even in 1 Kings 8.27, Solomon prays, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. In other words, not even the highest heaven can encompass God. We know that this is, in a very real sense, there is no place where God is not there. We know Isaac watched him very well. I seen the mighty power of God. And in the third verse of the hymn, it says, There is not a plant or flower below, but makes thy glories known. And clouds arise and tempests blow by order from thy throne. While all that borrows life from thee is ever in thy care. And everywhere that we can be, thou, God, art present there. The psalmist says it this way in Psalm 139, verse 8. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. So all that to say this, to say that God lives in heaven does not mean that he is limited to being there. God cannot be boxed in. For lack of better words, heaven is his home. This is where his throne is. This is the place where the most perfect worship of him takes place. So that is why we say that heaven is where God lives. The theme of heaven being the place where God lives is seen all throughout the scripture. In the first part of Isaiah 57, 15, it says, For thus the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place. This lets us know that God does indeed have a dwelling place. Moving over to Isaiah 63 and verse 14, it, it tells us, in verse 15, it tells us more about that place where it says, Look down from heaven and see from your holy and glorious habitation. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 33, 13 through 14, the Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men from his dwelling place. He looks out. Also in Psalm 102, verse 19, the psalmist says, he looked down from his holy height from heaven. The Lord gazed upon the earth. And we see this all throughout the scriptures, particularly the Sermon on the Mount. And if you would turn there with me, please. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, starting in Matthew chapter 5. And looking at a very familiar verse in verse 16, it says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. And glorify your father who is in where? Heaven. He's in heaven. Moving on down to verse 34 of this same chapter. Jesus says, But I say to you, make no oath at all either by heaven, for it is the throne of God. Then in chapter 6, in verse 1, Jesus says, 
Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. And in verse 9 of the same chapter, which we are all very familiar with, pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, goes on to say. In the next chapter in Matthew 7, verse 11, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven heaven give what is good to those who ask him. Go down to verse 21, which I believe is one of the strongest statements that Jesus ever spoke or made. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Then in chapter 10 of Matthew, verses 32 and 33. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And this theme is also taken up in Matthew chapter 12, verse 50. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and my sister. In chapter 16, verse 17, which is Peter's great confession, And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 18, verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And in verse 14 of this same chapter, <clears throat> so it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. And moving down to verse 19, where Jesus is talking about church discipline, he says, and again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. And the last verse of chapter 18 says, verse 35, my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So all throughout these passages we see Jesus talking about, he calls God his father who is where? in heaven. And in John 6 verses 50 through 51, Jesus says, this is the bread which come down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. He goes on to say, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. 
If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. These verses in John were to show the deity of Jesus, and many of those who heard Jesus' words would understand that. Beloved, there is indeed a place where God lives, and that place is called heaven. It is not an imaginary place. It's not a figment of imagination. It's not an emotion. It's not simply a feeling. Heaven is a place. It is God's place. Heaven is indeed real. In the Jewish mind, the term heaven was synonymous with God. Let me tell you that what I mean by this is that the time period between the Old and New Testament was 400 years. And during this time, the Jews had a real fear of God and would not use the covenant name of God, which was Yahweh or Jehovah, because they thought it was too holy to be spoken by their sinful lips. Wow. Oh, if people today would regard the name of God as such, when they flippantly use his name and take his name in vain, as if it means nothing. So instead of using the name Yahweh or Jehovah, they would substitute another name for God. And oftentimes, the name that they substituted was heaven. This is even seen today in many of our modern day Bibles. The name Jehovah or Yahweh is not there. As a footnote, last year a wonderful version of the Bible came out called the Legacy Standard Bible. And if you can get your hands on one, I would get one of these Legacy Standard Bibles. In this Bible, um, the Legacy Standard Bible, the name Yahweh has been preserved. And in the Old Testament, where it is translated in our Bibles, we see it as God. It is kept as Yahweh in this Legacy Standard Bible. And that's the way it should be. And it helps to preserve the true name of God, of Yahweh. And likewise, in the New Testament of the Legacy Standard Bible, the name servant is often used and is translated as slave. Oftentimes, you see it as servant in the Bible, but it should be many times translated as slave. And because of the negative connotations with the word slaves, it's just been taken out and replaced. Where it should, really should be, we are slaves of Christ. We are slaves of righteousness. It's only when there is a personal name when it should be used as servant, like servant of David, a name such as that. So instead of the Jews swearing by God's name, they would swear by heaven. Jesus even commented on this and said that it was the same as taking God's name in vain. In Matthew 23, 22, he says, and whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. A good example of how the phrases kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are used in the same way in scripture is seen in Luke 8, verse 10, which says, and he said to you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, 
What you have to understand is that Matthew wrote mainly to a Jewish audience. And remember, it is the Jews who did not want to say the name of God, so they would substitute the word heaven for God. We see this in Matthew 13, 11, where, which says, Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Then in a passage that most of us are familiar with in Luke 15 and verse 8, where the prodigal son is going over or saying what he will say to his father. And he says, I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Although we may see the word heaven used in place of God's name, we cannot draw the conclusion that scripture means for us to use heaven to mean the same as God himself. That's not what scripture means. These terms are not the same. God is far above heaven, greater than heaven. Remember heaven is a what? It's a place. It is a place where God lives. It is a place where believers will live with him forever and ever and ever. It is the heaven of all other heavens. This is which heaven? The third heaven. What we also have to understand about heaven is that it is not bound by time and space. What we do know from the Bible is that heaven is a real place that we can see and touch and there will be and there we will be with our material bodies. And in our puny minds, we think of places in terms of how tall it may be, how wide it may be, how long it may be. However, we know that heaven is not a place that is limited by height, width, or breadth. Heaven goes way beyond all those dimensions. So with that being said, we know that we cannot mark off heaven by certain boundaries. It goes way beyond our thoughts of time and space. Thus Isaiah says of, of God in Isaiah 57, 15, for thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place. So we know that God's home, heaven, is not limited by certain dimensions. We don't have to guess about this. This is how the Bible describes heaven. It is an actual place where believers will be and where we will be in God's presence for all of eternity. I know that in our little minds we cannot comprehend all that heaven is, even as the children were talking. We don't know everything, and we can't. But that is what makes heaven, heaven. And that is what makes God, God. It is far beyond our thinking, yet we know that there is a heaven. We know from the Bible that the kingdom of God has all the aspects of heaven, now in a real and spiritual sense. In other words, the kingdom of heaven rules in the life of every believer in Christ. The fact of the matter is, if you are a believer, you have eternal life when? Right now. Do you not? And your citizenship, even now, is not on earth, but it's where? It's in heaven. That is why Paul wrote in Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we, also, which we also, we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Paul says, is in heaven, he's talking about right now. Our citizenship is there now. How wonderful it is that in Ephesians 1.3, Paul says, Blessed be 
the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So we are with him in the heavenly places, and Paul expands on this thought in Ephesians 2, 5, and 6, where he says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Isn't that great? Although we are not in the physical place of heaven right now, spiritually we are seated with Christ even now. It is like we are seated with Christ in heaven. I can't overemphasize this enough. Because of our spiritual relationship with Christ, we have already entered into heavenly domain. Put another way, we are not in the physical place called heaven yet, but the God of heaven is our king even now, and we are under his rule and reign. We do not live in heaven right now. Maybe soon and very soon we are going to see the king. But right now we are living in what is called the heavenlies. We're in the heavenlies. We have eternal life when? Is, is it way down in the future? We have eternal life now. And the spiritual riches of heaven are completely ours in Christ Jesus right now. Jesus preached this in Matthew 4, 17, where he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Many such as the Pharisees were wondering about the physical kingdom of God, and this is what is recorded for us in Luke 17, 20 through 21. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor would they say, Look here, it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Think about it this way. Heaven is where we will experience the holiness of God, and have fellowship with him. But we can experience some of that right here and now. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. In the original, the word pledge was talking about a down payment or earnest money when making a purchase. And some of, some of you are very familiar with that when you say, I'm going to give you earnest money or whatever. Later, it became to mean a pledge. 23 years ago today, Lucretia and I made wedding vows to the Lord. Before we were married, I presented her with a ring, and most guys give their bride-to-be a ring, which is called a what? An engagement ring. And it's a pledge to the young lady that you will marry her. So our down payment, the Holy Spirit, right now, producing in us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that same fruit, that we produce now will be the same fruit we will have in heaven. One of my pastor friends says it this way. Moreover, we have the life of God in us and the rule of God over us. We have been given blessings and stature, 
befitting true citizens of heaven. We have become part of a new family, a new kind of community. We have left the kingdom of darkness for the kingdom of light. We are no longer under the dominion of Satan, but have entered God's eternal kingdom alongside Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creature, new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are among the first fruits of God's new creation. James 1.18 talks about that, which will culminate in the eternal new heavens and new earth. That's what Jesus meant when he said, the kingdom of God is within you. So let's be clear about this. Jesus was not saying that there is no literal or visible earthly kingdom. There are also many prophecies throughout the Bible that speak to this. He was also not saying that heaven is not a real place. He was pointing out that heaven goes far beyond any time or space that we know of. You see, the issue was with the Pharisees. They were demanding a kingdom right then. Jesus was making the point to them that the heavenly kingdom is here right now. Jesus was making the point to them that the heavenly kingdom was with them. So that's why Matthew 24, 14 says, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached. When Jesus preached, he urged people to strive to enter the kingdom, such as in Luke 13, 24. He pressed on people to be saved, as in John 5, 34 and other times. He talked about inheriting eternal life, as in Mark 10, 30. All of these things are used when confronting the rich young ruler in Luke 18, which says, a ruler questioned him, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? When Jesus asked him to sell all of his possessions, he did not want to do that. And in verse 24, it says, and Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. When a person truly repents and puts his or her trust in Christ, that person is what we will call what? Saved. Inherits eternal life, enters into the kingdom. So when saved believers come under Christ's reign, not so much physically, but spiritually. So although we are not in the physical heaven right now, we are citizens of heaven spiritually. So our minds should be focused on heavenly things. As we know, we are in, what's the word right now we're in? Not heaven, the heavenlies. Everyone said heavenlies. We're in the heavenlies. We are just having a foretaste of the glories to come. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 we are of good courage. I say and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So don't get it twisted. One who has put their faith in Christ alone for salvation, the moment they die, they will go where? To heaven to be in the presence of the Lord. Although we just said whenever one who is in Christ dies, they will go to be with the Lord. Some people still have a messed up view of what happens to believers. For example, some people believe that when Old Testament believers died, that they went to a place called Hades, which was a place for the dead. And that this place called Hades was sectioned off into a, a section for the wicked and a section for the righteous. They wrongly say that Old Testament saints who died went to a place called Abraham's bosom. And some of my children are smiling over there because I think they had a debate on this with some Bible beers. They, they see Abraham's bosom 
as a so-called holding place, and the believers were kept in Abraham's bosom and would not go to heaven until Christ conquered death by rising from the dead. We don't see this anywhere in scripture. Remember, we even talked about last week about those in the Bible who were raised, and there is no indication of what happened to them during the time that they were dead till the time when they were alive again. Another wrong view of what happens to believers after they die is what some of you may have heard, which is called soul sleep. Seventh-day Adventists are known for holding to this view. When a person is said to have fallen asleep, such as in John 11, 11, when Jesus was speaking of Lazarus, he says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. What you have to remember is that it is the body, not the soul, that sleeps when one dies. That is why the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the, did he, did he say your soul? To be absent from the body, body, and to be at home with the Lord. Everything we see in the Bible that talks about the death of believers speaks of them being immediately taken into the presence of the Lord. What sorrow that would bring if you know that your loved one has passed away and they're waiting somewhere? They're not in heaven? The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way. The bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption, but their souls which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal substance, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous being then made perfect in holiness are received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. Then there's the wrong view that I, I'm sure many of you have heard of, and that is purgatory. Medieval theologians called it limbus patrum, or what we may call limbo. According to this teaching, an Old Testament saint had to wait until Christ died for someone to enter heaven. The Bible nowhere talks about such a place. Purgatory is, is a view held by most Roman Catholics. They believe that justification is an ongoing process that is based on how much righteousness they can achieve. According to their doctrine, they do not believe that what Christ did on the cross was enough to save. They wrongly believe that one must earn more merit of his or her own by the sacraments and other good works. They also wrong, wrongly believe that righteousness is infused into them and not imputed to one. So since no one is perfectly righteous, they believe that the righteousness one gets by grace must somehow be perfected by one's own efforts. According to their teaching, they believe that the righteousness that one has inside is that which is needed for God to accept them. 
So they do not see justification as being complete until one is completely perfect by his or her own righteousness. My question is, what righteousness do they have inside? It's all like filthy rags. It's all sinful. It's all putrid. They do not believe that God justifies the ungodly. We know that all of that is a fallacy because there is one who is perfect. Catholics don't believe, don't say no one is perfect, but they say almost no one. So therefore, they do not believe that one can enter heaven immediately after death, but must first have their perfections worked out. So to come up with one, how one goes from the imperfect state to the perfect state, they devise a place called purgatory. They believe that most people go to purgatory after they die to so-called purge them of their remaining guilt, and then they gain whatever merit they may be lacking to enter heaven. And this purging involves intense pain and suffering. Can you get that? Why would you want to go in some place and suffer with pain after you've lived in this life of pain and suffering? What folly and foolishness. I would not be one signing up for that system. Get this and listen to how crazy it sounds. They do not believe that the imputation of Christ is enough to save sinners, but they believe that the imputation of righteousness from earthly sinners, namely themselves, is able to assist those in purgatory. That is why they have the so-called masses for the dead, and you hear them having the rosary beads, and they have all these prayers, and they do all of these. If you've ever been to a, a Catholic funeral, they go through all of this mumbo-jumbo and all of this stuff to pray a person out of the dead. They believe that the righteousness earned by means of the sacrament is imputed to the person in purgatory and shortens their stay there. This is simply unbiblical. Friends, if you know anyone who is in this system and they believe this, please go and try to rescue them out of it. They're headed on their way to hell unless they come to true repentance. There's nothing in us that can bring us salvation. The biblical view is that, is that God saves sinners by imputing to them the merit of Christ's perfect righteousness. Not in any means by one's own righteousness. The Bible says in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are declared righteous because of Christ's finished work for us on the cross. Christ paid the penalty for our sins. Our sins have been put on him in exchange. He gave us his righteousness. That is why in 2 Corinthians 5.21, which is one of my life verses, that says he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Such a beautiful picture of what Christ did, taking all of our sins upon himself for all of time, putting it upon himself, and in exchange, giving us his righteousness. 
So God does not first make us perfect and then accept us based on that. He justifies us by imputing to us righteousness. That is not that of our own and conforms us to the image of his son. Friend, he justifies the ungodly. And friend, that is the true and biblical justification. So, dear friend, are you sure that you are on your way to heaven? Has there been a time where you have realized that you are a sinner and cried out to God to save you and have mercy on your soul? Have you come to a place where you have repented of your sins and put your trust and faith in Christ alone for your salvation? Has Jesus taken your sins upon himself for you and imputed to you his righteousness in exchange for your sins? If not, why not? And this could be the very day when that could happen. Let's pray. Oh, dear Father, we come, Lord, as we contemplate and think on these great truths of what it means to be in Christ and heaven and where we are seated even now, that our citizenship is there. We are in the heavenlies even right now. So, Father, may you emblazon even on our hearts, on, on our minds as we go through this week. And any that we may know who are in, caught up in that system, the Catholic system, may we go and cry that they would be rescued from it. Have mercy upon our souls even this day. We pray all this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.